Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Vinny Damapolito. And I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. We begin with an interview about the upcoming celebration for asylum. Then Mark Dunley chats with Tom Morrissey of Lights Out Norlight. Later on, Willie Terry for this week's uh, Labor Bucket talks with uh, the roundtable discussion of The Struggle Continues. Yes, it is back. After that, Moses Nagel sits down with Barbara Smith and Bill Fletcher. Ahead of their event, how to talk about Ukraine. Finally, Andrea Cunliffe interviews David Graham of the Albany County District's Attorney's Office. But first, here are the headlines. The rebranding of the Windham Mountain, one of the Catskills' largest ski resorts, as an upscale destination, including the option for a $175,000 lifetime membership, has drawn the ire of many longtime skiers. The TU reports that critics say the average skier feels like they're slowly being pushed out, and this is the beginning by, in effect, turning it into a semi-private club. A federal jury has awarded $9.25 million to the mother of a prisoner who was killed in 2016 by correction officers at uh, Clinton Correctional Facility. The inmate was beaten to death after being found with racy photos. The Gazette reports that the City of Schenectady's Planning Commission has given, con- has given conditional approval to construct an ice hockey arena and events center at the Mohawk Harbor near the casino. The arena will, be, uh, will partially be used by the Union College hockey team. Various variances from the City Zoning Board of Appeals, such as on-site parking, must be approved before anything can be moved forward. The Gazette reports the Schenectady City Council's 2024 budget negotiations will continue into the weekend as the board seeks an agreement two weeks after the council missed the November 1st budget deadline. One big issue is how to respond to the mayor's proposal to increase water and sewer rates. One proposal is to agree to the raise for commercial properties, but half the increase for individual properties. African-American members of the council have also sought to cut $1.1 million from the mayor's proposal for police and fire department overtime funding. Craig Ross, the man accused of kidnapping a nine-year-old Greenfield girl from uh, Moreau State Park, is expected to appear in Saratoga County Court for an indictment, arra- an indictment arraignment Friday morning. Influenza and COVID-19 are on the rise in, in Saratoga County and parts of the North County compared to the rest of the state. Since respiratory disease tends to surge around Thanksgiving, doctors are encouraging New Yorkers to get vaccinated ahead of the holidays and to take precautions around relatives who are medically vulnerable. The governor has signed the Clean Slate Act into law, making over 2 million New Yorkers eligible for automatic sealing of their criminal records, making it easier for them to access jobs and various services. For misdemeanors, a person has to wait at least three years after serving their sentence and completing their parole or supervision. For certain felony crimes, the wrongdoer has to wait at least eight years after that point. Uh, Felony crimes that are excluded include sex crimes and Class A felonies, such as murder, terrorism, arson, kidnapping, and criminal possession of a large amount of drugs. 
And that's it for headlines. Uh, for those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us at 518-272-2390. All right. So with the recent influx of asylum seekers, there will be a celebration of the people and of asylum on, on Sunday, November 19th. And to tell us more about this event, we are now joined by Karen Beadle. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you so much. So what is, uh, can you give us a brief overview of what is taking place in the capital region right now regarding asylum? Well, um, what's happening and has been happening since May is that we have an asylum-seeking population that is officially here, and they are sponsored by New York City. Um, so these are asylum seekers who came through the southwestern border and relocated to New York City and went through the shelter system in New York City and are technically still in some ways part of the shelter uh, system in New York City, but they're being housed in four different hotels here in the capital region. Uh, what's your relationship with this issue? Uh, me personally? Uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, my name is Karen Beadle, and I'm part of Capital District Border Watch, uh, which is an organization that was formed in 2019. Uh, it grew out of the organizing around families and children who were separated at the border under the Trump-era immigration policies. And so we have been doing advocacy and education about the right to asylum and to support asylum seekers both at the border and in our community. Did you have a follow-up before? Oh, I was wondering, are, have you noticed if uh, many of these refugees are coming from the same areas down south, or is it a uh, central location, like a central event? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, there, there are a lot of trends that you see in migration, right? And it largely has to do with political instability in various regions. Sometimes it's economic instability. You know, these days it can be more related to climate change. But people are here for very particular reasons that have to do with why their region is unstable. And two of the, mo the larger populations of folks who are in the uh, hotels in the capital region are from Venezuela and Mauritania. Um, the Mauritanians have come really far, um, traveled through Africa. Some of them then traveled up through Latin America, through Panama. Similarly, the Venezuelans also traveled mostly by land to be here. And it's simply because conditions are really untenable for living, for working, for raising families, for having basic security. Um, and then we also see a lot of vulnerable populations, uh, GLBTQ folks, who are particularly vulnerable. Um, we have families in the capital region, uh, Venezuelan families, also families from Latin America. Most of the families are Spanish-speaking, so they are Mexican, Venezuelan, and from Central America. So when the, the event is to celebrate asylum, how will that be, how will asylum be celebrated on Sunday? Well, you know, it's very um, important for us to educate the community about the, the, the reason that asylum exists. 
And asylum exists because of the refugee situation during World War II, in which refugees who were um, in dire conditions were actually refused by countries like the United States, and people were not allowed or able to flee war and persecution. So 75 years ago today is when the first, this year, is when the first international standards were set, and the concept of asylum as international law and as an important human right came into being. So most essentially, we're celebrating the idea that when people are facing war and persecution in their home countries, that there is a sense of responsibility and obligation for other countries to receive those people and to create positive conditions for them to rebuild their lives and to be able to heal and um, create a home in a new country. That really ties into current events. <laughs> it does. It does. You know, and I think you know what, what's what's profound right now is there are over two hundred and million two hundred million people who are displaced from their homes in the world. You know, so so it's a very real issue. It's a very real issue um, in in Sudan right now. It's a very real issue in um, many countries where we're seeing refugee populations becoming extremely vulnerable. Um, so we're educating about the human right to migrate. Human beings have always migrated. It will always be an issue. We can expect people to need to leave their regions or the areas they live in for a variety of reasons. And we need to create immigration policy that represents that uh, people need to move and they need to be received. When it comes to uh, unstable situations in countries that the U.S. has had men much of the influence in those countries leading to the current situations, what did you say? Hugely. Yeah, and you know, my own personal background is that I worked in Guatemala in the or in the mid 1980s, which was a time period after there had been extreme political instability and military governments in Guatemala, beginning with a coup in 1954 that the United States sponsored, bringing this series of military rulers into Guatemala. So when I was there in 1986, it was when the first civilian government of Benicio Cerezo came to power, and it was the first time that labor unions and other human rights organizations were able to come out onto the streets and begin to advocate to find their disappeared relatives and and to look for justice um, rather than impunity for, for the travesty that happened. And so it's very real to me that the refugees that we're seeing from Guatemala these days are the children and grandchildren of of folks who were dealing with the extreme repression that had happened in the 1980s. So the lack of stability in Guatemala, the, the fact that there are a lot of um, gangs that are operating, those gangs are, are the, the new members of what were the former death squads. So the destabilization of the military government, which was constructed by the United States, has led to uh, continued economic um, concentration of wealth in the hands of a few. It that has also allowed these drug lords to continue to operate and destabilize the country. So they're very, very linked to historic U.S. policy in Guatemala, but in many of these countries. 
Well, you've given a gr- us a great primer on the uh, education, which will be a part of this event, but there's also <laughs> food and music. So could you talk about um, beyond the education, what what else will be a part of Sunday's ce- uh, celebration yeah, of asylum? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're really excited. Um, there uh, is a cooking collective of Venezuelans that's come together and today they were shopping to buy the food that they are going to be cooking for the dinner. They're going to be making traditional arepas, which are a Venezuelan food many people are familiar with. Um, so they're they're great because you can make them meat-based, you can make them bean-based. So they're, we're going to have vegetarian options as well as kind of more traditional uh, Venezuelan cuisine. Um, we're going to have some of the local asylum speakers, uh, speakers speaking about their journeys and how they came to be in the capital region. Um, we have two music groups that are performing. Taina Seeley will be playing uh, to start the event. And then we have Mixed Roots, um, which is a local Afro-Caribbean kind of inspired band that will also be playing at the end. So, um, and the goal of this event is to support the local asylum seekers who are in, in the hotels and to, um, you know, gather funds to continue to support um, their food access while they're here. Cool. And if someone would like to make a reservation or a donation, when should they uh, reach out by? Uh, yeah, so our reservation deadline is today, but we will be accepting um, reservations up until the event. We think we'll be able to accommodate a few more people. Um, so if people want to make a reservation, they can call Victor at 207 Five nine zero five one four eight. He's taking dinner reservations by either phone call or text. Um, and people are welcome to make donations um, at the event, or they can contact us to learn more about that. And we, um, this event, so this interview is happening on Thursday evening, will be replayed on Friday morning. Um, and so okay. if somebody wants to attend and doesn't want to eat, is that also a possibility? That is also a possibility. Yeah, we would love to have people. And and we're not going to have, um, you know, problems accommodating people in the space. We're really lucky to be holding this at the First Lutheran Church, which has room to accommodate, you know, at least, you know, over 200 people. So we're um, confident that we'll be able to, you know, uh, have everyone come who wants to come. Thank you, Kat, uh, Karen Beadle. It's been such a pleasure to have you, and we're looking forward to this event, Celebrate Asylum, a fundraising dinner to support local asylum seekers at the First Lutheran Church in Albany, 181 Western Ave, Albany, New York. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great evening. You Bye-bye. Bye-bye. On Monday, November 20th, more than three years after the federal and state laws were changed to require Norlite hazardous waste incinerator in Cohoes, to require the company to treat its hazardous ash as a, hazardous, as a hazardous material, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation will hold a public hearing in Cohoes, New York, on its proposed uh, permit modification to require Norlite to comply with the law. The hearing at the Cohoes Senior Center will start at 6 p.m. We're talking today with Tom Morrissey, who's involved with the Lights Out Norlite Group, which has been trying to get the uh, Norlite hazardous waste uh, facility and accurate production in Cohoes to, to be um, shut down. And on Monday, November 20th uh, at 6 p.m., the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation is holding a hearing at 6 p.m. related to trying to require Norlite 
to comply with the change in regulations that took place three years ago, namely that the um, toxic ash from their hazardous waste incinerator from the pollution equipment has to be disposed of as a hazardous waste rather than as their present practices, they mix it with their product and sell it to the construction industry. So um, Tom, why don't we just start off a little bit, you know, why are you concerned about Norlite? Well, it, I didn't know all that much about it when I moved here. I now live about two miles from, as the crow flies, from the plant. And um, we had been variously involved in uh, the Citizens Environmental Coalition, which we gave money to. And the woman that visited us said, gee, you should be concerned about the Norlite plant. And I didn't know anything about it. Of course, I'd already moved in. Um, and so as time went on, it became clear that we were getting fumes from burning over here. We'd go for a walk after dinner most nights and we'd smell this weird smell. And we'd, so eventually we got involved. And it's really, for me, it's a, not just a personal thing, you know, for my own health and safety to get rid of the fumes and the dust that comes my way. But, you know, those of my neighbors and, and the town and um, my concern is that, you know, okay, so if we have this terrible plant, what is it gonna do to our property values? So those are some of my concerns. Now, I understand you've been involved with the citizens group Lights Out Norlife for a couple of years. What's your feeling that, um, you know, how is the state, you know, Department of Environmental Conservation, how responsive have they been to some of the concerns being raised by neighbors like yourself? Um, I think they show concern because they do react, but I don't feel that the Department of Environmental Conservation really is effective in, in governing what occurs there at the plant. I mean, there was uh, this piece of information that came out of the plant maybe two or three years ago that Norlite was burning firefighting foam. And that, that stuff creates um, PFAS, which is cancerous. So, I mean, <laughs> You know, yeah, they they show that they're reacting, but they don't actually have any power. They don't use any of their power to make anything um, better for the for the people around there. Now, I understand this hearing on um, Monday, November 20th at the Coho Senior Citizen Center. People will be able to um, testify probably for about three, three minutes. Um, you know, what What are some of the concerns that people should raise in their testimony? Well, um, I think this, the plant um, creates this uh, silicate dust that is piled in piles around their plant. And um, when the wind blows, it blows everywhere. And I think um, last I knew there had been samples taken across the river in Troy and Lansingburg and even further, and the silicate dust is found there. So um, it affects more people than perhaps nor, uh, the Department of Environmental Conservation would like to have you know. 
So um, I think people should be concerned. They should raise the issue of why isn't the Department of Environmental Conservation uh, governing this uh, or making any kinds of uh, legal action against the plant to have them control the dispersal of dust from the site. Uh, it, it seems like um, that's one of the things, you know, that uh, the silicate dust, which is produces silicosis and and uh, that leads to cancer. Um, that's one of them. The other one is what is going on with um, the water pollution? Because a lot of the dust gets washed into the the uh, stream that runs through the property, and it ends up in the in the uh, the Hudson River. That's another thing. And then also not even not even the dust that goes into the air is when they burn these hazardous wastes. Um, what kind of uh, gases are being produced? What kind of ash is coming down on on the people downwind of the plant? Those are huge issues that it seems like Department of environmental conservation is not reacting to. That would be very helpful for them to uh, to legislate or at least to govern. Now, I will point out that this hearing is particularly focused on how they treat the hazardous ash from the pollution uh, equipment, but they do take that ash and not only do they mix it with the aggregate product that they, you know, then sell to the larger world for construction, um, but they also store it as part of these massive, massive piles, hundreds and hundreds of feet high out back. And so the, 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 the silicate dust that you mentioned and the ash dust, you know, they all, you know, get blown across, um, you know, people's you know, yards. Have, have you noticed dust? I mean, you're about two miles away, so dust may be a little bit less um visible but have you seen dust i've heard of other people having dust issues well i personally have seen the dust end up on my window sills and my door sills and it ends up on the, the windows you know the dust will stick to the windows um yeah i'm sure we don't get as much of it as the close neighbors of the plant get but the wind blows in all directions it's just not prevailing winds all the time the, the wind direction moves around and, and we are affected. And in fact, as I've heard, um, the spread of, of dust could be as far as 60 miles from the plant. And if the, the wind blows in all directions, guess what that means? It means it covers Schenectady, covers Albany, covers, <clears throat> covers Troy, may even get as far as Massachusetts. Um, so, you know, there is a concern there. Um, yeah, the dust is dust and, you know, you, it eventually falls to the ground. But this stuff is microscopic and, you know, it, it's, it's very light and it travels very far and it gets into people's lungs. You know, and my, I've noticed in my own health, health that I have, you know, developed a bit of a, a light cough. You know, this is chronic. This is not something that I would chalk up to a cold. So I, I think there are concerns. And you know, the the effects of the dust and, and the ash won't be known immediately. It'll take, you know, 20 or 30 years for it to affect someone's health in a very significant way. 
but it happens. And so I think that is a, should be a concern for, for individuals. Now, you mentioned it takes a while for these things to show up, but I know that one of the things that Lights on Norlight had done was produce a map using the state's own data from their cancer registry, showing that it was a, basically three cancer clusters in Albany County um, of respiratory cancer, uh, a big one being around Norlight big one, and two others around the old Albany Answers incinerator, garbage incinerator in Albany, and the other one being at the Ravina Cement Plant. And I know the Department of Health's response to that was to say, as they always do, oh, we think the problem is primarily people around Norlight smoke too much. I guess for some reason they would smoke more than average uh, citizens and, and kind of said, and you know, yeah, industrial pollution from Norlight might be a problem, but that's too complicated. Um, so hearings, November 20th, I know there's a press conference at 530. If people want to show up early, hearings at 6, press conference at 530 at the Psycho Senior Citizen Center, 10 Cayuga Plaza in Cohoes, David Carpenter speaking, Chris Savinsky, Ed Sokol is a longtime resident. Thank you very much for joining us today. And this has been uh, Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. There, we have many uh, stories on Nor uh, Norlight in our archives and the um, a collection of dust from just at the sanctuary, which is across from uh, Norlight, across the river. That dust has been uh, tested for Norlight uh, dust. So it is not just around the neighborhood. <laughs> for those of you just tuning in, I'm Vinny Damapolito. And I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany. Also streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. And the struggle continues is back. For this week's Labor Bucket, Willie Terry brings us another round of The Struggle Continues, which was recorded on October 29th, 2023. This is part one. This is Willie Terry, your Hustle Mohawk magazine, Roman labor correspondent. And we're here in the segment today called The Struggle Continues. With uh, two other correspondents, they're working with uh, Carlos Delfo and Angel Martinez. And uh, we have with us an icon from the civil rights days. I want to thank Carlos Delfo for getting him to uh, come speak with us. And Carlos, go ahead and say what you want to say. I just wanted to say that we have today is a beautiful day. On this uh, 29th of October, that we're going to really talk about history. Not what they call, or the media calls, corporate media says civil rights. We were fighting for human rights. We were the freedom fighters there that stood there. We were the children of Ella Baker, Mama Ella Baker, and all the Sun Hill heroes, and all the freedom fighters, and to a brother that died, that later on, people went against the war, Sammy Young. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about all of us that sacrificed and we were quite listed. So here we start now. Oh, okay. Thank you, Carlos. Thank you. Young Carlos. Right. 
Okay. I just want to start off by just doing just an introduction of uh, Brother Mikaso Dada, who was known in his early days as Willie Ricks. And uh, he was a prominent civil rights activist and community organizer. And he was leader in the struggle for equal rights and justice in the United States. And he worked alongside John Lewis as the field secretary for SNCC. That's the Student Nonviolent Coordinating uh, Committee. And he also was active in the Black Panther Party. And he coined, right. the, coined the slogan, Black Power, that Black was Power. popularized by his friend Kwame Ture. Uh, and also he coined the slogan, Black Power, that was popularized by his friend Kwame Ture, a.k.a. Stokely Carmichael, that gave a Black Power speech in Greenwood, Mississippi, back in June the uh, 16, 1966, at the March Against Fear. Now, we could talk about Mikasa Dada uh, all day. Matter of fact, you could write a, a, a books about Mikasa Dada. But these are just a few things that I just want to bring up about him. And how you doing, Mikasa? Doing great, African. All right, all right, all right. So we're going to uh, get into it. Uh, this segment, we call, we call this The Struggle Continues. And uh, we have set this up a while back you know, to, to talk about things that went on in, in the past in reference to the civil rights movement. And Carlos Duffer was one of the key persons that uh, really helped us pull this together. So I guess we're going to start off with some questions because, you know, we got a long ways to go. Uh, but for, the major thing is tell us something about your life and how you got involved. No problem. Uh, I uh, grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I grew up like everybody else, uh, going in the back doors and being exploited, living on apartheid, whatever you want to call it, segregation, slavery in different forms. Um, and at one point, uh, I came up during the time after Emmett Tibbs and then after Rosa Parks sit down on the bus and forced all the men and people in Montgomery and around the world to stand up. And that's what gave birth to Kim, Dr. King and whatever. And then I was in, and uh, at some point, the students, uh, young people took the movement and began to go sit in where white folks said we couldn't sit and go ride on the front of the bus where we supposed to go to the back. And before you know it, we were having demonstrations and protests, nonviolence, and some of us were throwing a few bricks and balls and and busting a few heads back when they bust ours. And and uh, from that, uh, it just spread it all over the South and uh, probably around the country, I guess. And when it spread it, we were out there just battling. And a little lady named Ella Baker, who worked with Dr. King, and had helped organize Dr. King's organization, uh, SCLC. And she told Martin King when he had his organization um, that you need an organization because he had three people, himself, Ralph Abernath, and Y.T. Walker. And Ella Baker told him, you need a staff, Martin. And, Martin, and she went and helped Martin put together a staff, put together an office in Atlanta, SCLC. And she traveled around the South investigating lynchings and hangings and whatever, but she's a mighty lady. And at some point, 
she saw that all these students sitting in and demonstrating and going to jail and protesting, she decided that they need to come together. And she went to Martin King and said, look, Martin, let's bring these students together and uh, put them, you know, get them organized. And Martin agreed. Matter of fact, she got $850 from Martin. He gave her the money. They met at Raleigh, North Carolina, at Shaw University, and came together and said they were going to put the organization together. And when they came together, Martin wanted them to be a youth group for him. But she said, no, y'all need your own autonomy. Form your own organization. And we formed the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And we formed the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. We came together and, and got our little office here in Atlanta and got uh, uh, officers and put them together. And uh, Marion Barry and many others, Jim Foreman and many others came and that when we came together, we decided we would use nonviolence. Uh, we would coordinate what we were gonna do and we would be a committee. So how we came up student nonviolent coordinating committee. And when we would come together, we would use nonviolent as a tactic not as a way of life, where Dr. King saw it as a way of life, and that's where we had a slight disagreement, and that we took small groups of people and sent them to different parts of Alabama, Mississippi, South Georgia, South Carolina, and other places, and they would go in, and one of the things that SNCC would do, wherever it would go, it would not go in as the leader, but it would go in to form leadership and develop leadership on the local level. And our job was to serve that leadership. We've sent Sherrod to Southwest Georgia, where he organized the Albany movement. He uh, went into uh, Terra County and, and whatever, but we organized that movement. And within that movement, we started out, we were protesting, sitting in, demonstrating, and going in the front door. We were beaten, bombed, like to bomb the church in Birmingham. Uh, we were jailed, mass jails and whatever. In Albany, Georgia, they put hundreds and hundreds of people in jail, had mass demonstrations throughout the South. And at that point, after going to jail, being beaten, some people said, well, we need to vote these crackers out of office, and we need to start voter registration. And we created voter registration in Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia, where we sent uh, Bob Moses and a little crew down to uh, Greenwood, Mississippi, and worked in the Delta, Mississippi. We sent people to Selma and other places, Southwest Georgia, and we went to work voter registration. Some people in SNCC said, well, that's the cop-out. We want to keep fighting and keep confronting these people. And we found out that when we tried to do voter registration, we were still confronting them because when we tried to do voter registration, they blew up houses like Mr. Damon down in uh, Hattiesburg, Mississippi. They went to his house and saw us shooting and uh, he shot back and took, took his family out the back door. And where he was holding them back, they threw bombs in his house and burned his house down, burned him up in the house. Uh, uh, Charlie Mac Parker down in Mississippi, he, uh, the county commissioner came out and he tried to register vote and shot him in the head with a shotgun. Uh, later on, they killed Chaney, Swan, and Goodman. Uh, we went on plantations and talked to people, and people like Fannie Lou Hamer came off those plantations and started speaking out 
and they beat up, put in jail, and all those kinds of things. People were put off the plantations and whatever, but we faced violence and murder and killing, just like you see in uh, 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 Palestine today. Uh, they did us the same way uh, that they did uh, doing in Palestine today. So we found ourselves in a state of war throughout the South. And that, that's how I came on board. When everybody else came in, started demonstrating, protest, sit in, and whatever, I got in that group. And uh, I was one of the group people that came into the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And uh, the rest is my history. And that was part one of the roundtable discussion entitled The Struggle Continues, hosted by Hudson Mohawk Magazine roaming correspondent Willie Terry. On Saturday, November 18th at 11 a.m., the Albany Public Library is hosting a talk at the Washington Avenue branch. The talk features labor activist and civil rights leader Bill Fletcher, Jr., in conversation with black feminist author and activist Barbara Smith. The event will focus on how to talk about the conflict in Ukraine now that it has been pushed aside in the news by the bombing and killings in Gaza and Israel. Moses Nagel spoke with them both to preview the event. If people don't know, Bill uh, Fletcher is one of the most significant black freedom fighters in this era, and his era spans the 20th century into the 21st. When I talk about you, Bill, I always mention that you were president of uh, the Trans-Africa Forum, which was Mm -hmm. one of the most significant anti-apartheid organizations in the United States, during the era of apartheid. So whenever we can get uh, Bill Fletcher to come to our capital region, we're very happy about that. And Bill and I work together in the Ukraine Solidarity Network, which is a national organization. So we got to be reunited after having known each other for a number of years. So that was something that we really wanted to have and be able to share. For you, Bill, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about why the Ukraine solidarity movement was important to you and how you think it fits in with your other work? Ukraine work is important on multiple levels, not the least of which is that the pretext used by the Russians to invade Ukraine really mirrored those that were used by George W. Bush to invade Iraq. And that was one of the things that struck me immediately. Second was that Ukraine has a colonial heritage vis-a-vis Russia. That is, it is dominated as, in effect, a colony by Russia for uh, centuries. And even though, ironically, the Russian state originated in what is now Ukraine, Russia came to dominate as part of the building of its empire. It came to dominate Ukraine. So in that sense, Ukraine shares much with most of the rest of the world, which has been victims of colonialism. And so that also affected me. The third thing is my great fear of the Putin regime specifically and the growth of global right-wing authoritarianism generally. And the, when you look at the relationship that Putin has had with Trump, for example, and growing segments of the Republican Party, you see that much like in the pre-World War 
two situation in the United States. There are segments of the political right that are more than willing to not only give a pass, but to advocate in favor of right-wing authoritarian movements in Europe and in some other parts of the world. And I think that that's what we're seeing. My next question is about the post-October 7th environment. There's so many parallels here, um, issues of occupation, but also the way that these have created some real splits in um, the American public, although it seems from a distance at least that this country comes down on the opposite side on these two conflicts. The United States does not have a very good history of being on the right side of history, but every so often they are, like in World War II. In the lead up to World War II, there were movements that were saying to the United States government that with the advance of fascism, the United States needed to take a clear and unequivocal stand. And in, uh, when the Spanish Civil War erupted in 1936, these movements insisted that the United States should militarily support the Spanish government against the fascist uprising and the direct intervention by the Germans and Italians. That was the correct stand. Um, so one general principle is that when there is aggression, we should be on the right side of history. There's obviously so much here, and that's okay, because if people want to go deeper in this issue, you guys will be at the Albany Public Library at 11 a.m. on Saturday. It's the Washington Avenue branch, what is referred to as the main branch. You'll be able to go much deeper into these issues then. If I could just have one last question, you both have an incredibly rich, long history, specifically in speaking to the issues of oppressed people. So can you boil down, like, how do you determine in these type of situations who are the oppressed people? Because everybody has sort of mastered some of this language in both directions. And you know, who Well, I think the, what's really uh, important about the work that we've been doing on Ukraine is that we listen to the people who actually are dealing with the situation on the ground from the bottom up. And that's another way to think about political work. Instead of looking at what governments are doing and from the top down, because it seems like governments tend to make uh, big mistakes. The United States relationship to Ukraine and to Israel and Palestine and uh, et cetera, and Russia, all of the co those countries that the United States is playing on the table with, it's consistent. It's consistent because the United States is looking out for what it sees as its capitalist interest, its economic interest, its power domination interest. They see themselves lining up against Russia so that Russia does not outdistance them in the race for world hegemony. And then as far as Israel is concerned, they're siding with the people who they see as having similar interests to theirs in that region. And that includes economic interests as well. So we listen to Ukrainians, we listen to Russian dissidents, we listen to Palestinians, and we listen to Israelis who oppose the occupation. So that's what we do. Let me, let me add to that. See, I think this is why history is so important. And the problem is in the United States, we actively oppose history and we embrace myth. So that then leads people to start stories wherever they want to start the story because they don't feel bound to any 
real understanding of history. I mean, if you want to look at the current situation in the Middle East, you don't go back 2,000 years. That's a myth. You go back to the 1800s, and you start with the development of a Zionist movement in Europe that was in direct response to the absolute hatred that European Christians have had towards Jews since the Roman Empire. And you look at the Zionist movement as a movement that was providing a particular pro-imperial solution to how they perceived anti-Semitism playing out. And that solution necessitated aligning the Zionist movement with imperial powers. So the, the root of this crisis does not start October 7th. And that's the problem. When you, when you start the story midway, and this is true if you're watching a film or reading a book, you start the story in the middle, you, you can't figure out really what's going on. And so for much of the U.S. public, what they're exposed to in the media is October 7th, Hamas committed a war crime in launching this attack. And it's true. There was a war crime in attacking civilians, not the military side, but simply, you know, going after civilians was a war crime by international law. No question about it. Now, having said that, did that come out of nowhere? Did that just sort of pop up? No. It has to be understood in the context of Gaza being the largest open-air prison on this planet. But that has to be understood in terms of the implications from the 1967 war, which itself has to be understood from the implications of the 1948 war, which itself has to be understood from the implications of the way that the 1947 partition of Palestine was carried out without the input of Arabs. I mean, this is what I think people in the United States got to get. Arabs were not involved in dividing up of Palestine. It was carried out by Europeans. So when people wonder why the Palestinians upset, I mean, they had a chance. Well, wait a minute now. This was done on their heads. It was done over them. So why shouldn't they be furious? So you can't look at what we're, going, what we're seeing right now in Gaza by just going back to October 7th. It's completely misleading. But see, it's the easy way. And the U.S. media, with all due respect, likes to hit the easy button. And therein lies the problem. So to understand, go with history. Your quote that the U.S. embraces myth and ignores history is, that is a, a pull quote for sure. That's, that's pretty powerful. It, um, it's not that it ignores history. It opposes history. It opposes. Wow. That, that's yeah. very important. That when things get, things get in the way, as we see now in the debates around so-called critical race theory, when the facts get in the way of the myth, you get rid of the facts. And that was Moses Nagel speaking with author and activist Barbara Smith and civil rights leader Bill Fletcher. They will be having a public conversation on Saturday, November 18th at 11 a.m. at the Albany Public Library on Washington Avenue. And we end tonight's show with Andrea Cunliffe's story. She sat down with David Graham, the community justice and outreach manager from the Albany County uh, District Attorney. 
Breaking Circles of Harm and Violence was an event held by the People's Campaign for Parole Justice. They were acknowledging and awarding projects that involve restorative justice, fighting crime, building community. I spoke with David Graham, the Community Justice and Outreach Manager from the Office of Albany County District Attorney. This is our conversation. I'm Andrea Cunliffe. What do you do? I wear multiple hats, so assuming the DA's hat, the community justice hat, I'll, I'm wearing that one right now. So I run, oversee a community justice um, outreach center in Arbor Hill of Albany, and we literally do community justice. We utilize restorative justice to resolve cases. And we have community members trained in restorative justice volunteer to resolve cases. And Is that like lawyers and attorneys? No, just random community members that go through a training. And we have all walks of life, young, old, educated, maybe not so much educated, formerly incarcerated. And I also have now I have one who is a former graduate of the program who is now a facilitator. Um, so, yes, and, and they re- focus on repairing of harm instead of punishment. There's an amount of money that's owed. That's we, we focus on repairing that. Apologies, you know, in every case is different and every person is different. So all of them um, kind of go organically, you know, differently. But at the end, it is a young person, 18 to 24, who um, completes a program. You see a lot of maturity in that individual and we help them move forward. How do you get people to come in and, and take part in what you offer? As in the, the volunteers or the cases? The cases. So one of the luxuries of working for the district attorney's office, he has the cases. So our district attorney earmarks the cases of these individuals um, in the right age group and level of crimes. And then we have another community board who reviews the cases every month and they vote on them, which cases they want to bring in. And um, that's, uh, yeah. And they bring them in to you, to your organization, and you do research. How do you deal with that? How do you do that? Um, so the board, so the monthly, the boards vote on these cases. If they vote a case in, um, they sit with me, and I do an intake on them, and I match them with a facilitator, and we begin working, planning their um, circle and the restorative circle. So are these people who are um, accused of a crime, or are they oh, involved? Oh, these are people who have been arrested. Oh, yes. so are they incarcerated at the time? Um, not so much now. I haven't seen too many, but some have been. But um, depends, I guess, on the case. Yeah, they're they're actually um, diverted from sentencing. So they're you know that's why our program is extremely powerful because not only um, an alternative to incarceration, it's an alternative to sentencing. And once they've completed all of their their agreement. They go before a judge and have all cases dismissed and expunged. So it's as if it's never happened. That's amazing. Yeah. Is this something that's been going on for a while now? Um, seven years, 2016, this felony level of, of restorative justice started. But uh, I think back in 04, it started at the misdemeanor level. This is phenomenal. What a brilliant idea. Who started this? Uh, the district attorney, David Source. It's his program, yeah. It's uh, his program to, and, and one of the things he talks, uh, the motto is fighting crime and building hope for his office. And um, 
we focus on prevention. You know, we realize is that, you know, we can't arrest and prosecute our way out of these problems. We need to put some attention on prevention and solving some of the problems in our community. And one of the powerful things about our, our program is you're seeing that these individuals who come in to work out their case, um, through the process, they mature, but they also become more part of the community and they have network. They're supported by individuals. We have an individual who is formerly incarcerated. He is also a facilitator, a very good facilitator. And, and at the end of one of his cases, when his, graduate, his case was about to graduate, he had a breakdown and he cried and he said, we never had a program like this when I was coming up. And he, and he just cried and, and just thought about what life would be like for himself or even society if we had programs like this where we surrounded these individuals and held them accountable for what their actions were, but at the same time supported them in their growth and moving forward. And we all really took that in. That hit me a lot to hear him say that. And, and it helped me to realize, too, this program is bigger than we even know. You know, we're really making great strides. So it's also community healing. It's also working within the, it's not yes. hiring a lawyer or, no. you know, that it, it's action yes, happening community. within the community. Yes, community members. Is that what you would say would be a, a necessary force in keeping keeping crime down, keeping violence down? Yes. Um, no studies show that people are less likely to commit a crime against someone they know, um, especially violent crimes. And, um, but, you know, when you don't know someone, it's kind of easier to, I don't know that person, you know. But when you know and you have a connection, I believe it's harder to, you, you know, have more of an understanding. Like, you know, his mom works at the hospital, you know. He's got a disabled brother. Like, you understand, like, you know, maybe that's no one we should <laughs> victimize. But, you know, I mean, I'm just thinking out loud. No, but, yeah, sure. that's kind of what you hear from people. Um, but when you're connected I'll give you an example. Uh, on our lower uh, level crime um, program, we had a college student that was stealing um, uh, hygiene personal items from a big box store or whatever. Part of her reparative agreement was to do community service in, our, in the community, and she found a soup kitchen or pantry in Albany that she did her hours and served there. And she had such a connection with that place. When she was done with her hours, she would come back because she just knew the people that worked there. They were like friends to her now. And also she came back and told us she felt very stupid because all the things she was stealing, this program gives out for free. So I was like, wow. But she wasn't connected with the community. She didn't know that at the time. So she got involved with a stealing scheme that another student taught her how to do. So again, um, not having that connection is part of it. And when you're connected to the community, you can make a phone call. I don't have to steal anything. I know people, you know. What inspired you to work with this particular endeavor? Are you, are you a lawyer? Are you? Um, I would say I've always been running youth programs. I've been a community person from jump, and that's how I know the individual I came to this meeting to support. He was my former student when I worked at Albany High Who School, Lamik Taylor. Oh, right. And um, also, I run a um, program through the YMCA called Teen Night on Saturday nights. Lamik was a participant of that program as well. So I've always been working with young people in our community. So it was only a natural segue to help prevent them. Um, you know, it gave me more tools to do the work that I do of already investing and supporting them. And are you from the capital region? Yes. You're yes. from where, Albany? Albany area, yeah. 
Um, yeah. So what do you see happening in the future with this organization and your endeavors? How do you see it moving forward? Well, it's part of Albany County. It is a government entity. And so this office is a satellite office. And I just see us expanding the work um, in our office and possibly other offices in other lanes um, in the community because it's focused on restoring and resolving issues. And if we focus on that, I believe we will all win at the end. Um, so just really expanding the work, um, letting others know about the work, and getting more people involved. That's brilliant. Wonderful. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. This has been Andrea Kundla for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, speaking with David Graham, Community Justice and Outreach Manager for the Office of the Albany County District Attorney. Thanks for that. And uh, Andrea Cunliffe is a regular reporter around justice issues. Um, and you can hear more stories around justice and issues of incarceration on our website. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Vinny Damapolito. We want to thank all of our volunteers who helped make this uh, episode possible. Contributors to today's episodes include uh, Mark Dunley, uh, Willie Terry, Andrea Cunliffe, and Moses Nagel. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email to HMM at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platforms. We appreciate you for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.